Hello and welcome back after a short break to Rupture Radio. It's Dermot here with another episode of our At The Roots series, in which we get to the root of some issues with those knowledgeable on the subject. Before I get into it, I'd just like to thank everyone for bearing with us, as we had to take a short break over the last month due to some capacity issues. As many on the socialist left will know, August can be a bit of a quiet one, but we're back now and should be able to bring you content on a regular basis. As always, if anyone would like to support this effort, they can do so at the Patreon link below. For as little as €2, you can help us with editing and production tasks. You can also support the podcast by sharing our episodes online or telling anyone who might be interested. All support is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Alright, today I'm joined by Dr. Patrick Bresnahan and Dr. Patrick Brody to discuss the role of data centres in modern capitalist societies, with a focus on their place in Irish society. Data centres play a major role in our political, economic and ecological system, and I think this conversation is a very concise and accessible overview of the issues raised by their use. Patrick Bresnahan is a lecturer in the Department of Geography at Maynooth University and has worked in fields of urban political ecology, science and technology studies and environmental humanities. Patrick Brody is a media scholar and postdoctoral fellow at McGill University in Montreal. His research focuses on the global and environmental politics of data and energy systems. Both have had their research published in a number of academic journals, and I would encourage everyone listening to have a read of the article which both wrote for Rupture magazine. I'll leave a link in the episode description below. I'll now switch over to the interview. All right, I'm delighted to be joined on the line by Patrick Bresnahan. Hi, Dermot. How's it going? And Patrick Brody. Hey, how's it going? Thanks a million for joining me, lads. Uh, today we're going to be discussing an article that the two of you wrote for uh, Rupture Issue 1 or 2. I'm going to have to go check that uh, thereafter. A very good article, which I will link in the episode description, which outlines the role that um, data centers play in modern economies and also in Ireland and the kind of uh, effects that that has on uh, the energy output and some difficulties in other areas. Just to begin, I guess, to kick off uh, with the most basic question is what role do data centres play in modern capitalist economies uh, these days? I mean, so I'll start with, um, you know, we were kind of talking about how to address this issue earlier. Um, And I think kind of one of the starting points that you hear from like the from industry professionals and from you know kind of uh industry lobbyists and stuff like this is you know you the kind of metaphors of data center or data being the fuel of the fourth industrial revolution um you know which would which was a concept termed or at least popularized by the world economic forum um back in like 2015 or 2016 and it kind of describes the uh, the advent of, um, you know, kind of industrial formations around smart technologies, around data-driven technologies, Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, um, 
things like this, right? Um, so data centers are kind of um, seen as the engines of that. Um, you know, if data is the fuel, then they're the engines that are kind of um, powering these uh, these sorts of economies. Um, and so I think that, you know, obviously that has, because of the, uh, how widespread, you know, data-driven technologies and kind of data-driven commerce is, that kind of has massive global implications um, for, you know, the kind of general makeup of, uh, you know, kind of world system, world capitalist systems. Um, and so I guess data centers play a pivotal role within it, right? You know, and I guess you don't want to like overstate how, um you know, how powerful they are in within them. But I do think that there's a reason why there's such a kind of flashpoint, right? You know, that within, um, you know, kind of uh, discussions around, you know, uh, future economies, because, you know, um, obviously we'll get more into the energy demands and these sorts of things. You know, one thing I, th- I might add is that... Um... You know, I think that for probably for a lot of listeners to this show, at least like there's an understanding that, um, you know, you know, you you think about, you know, companies like Google or, um, you know, Amazon or, you know, streaming platforms like Netflix. These are some of the biggest, you know, companies in the world most profitable. And, you know, a lot of how they operate is off um, is off data, like, you know, whether that's through the kind of extraction of data and trying to sort of optimize uh you know ability to sort of sell stuff back to you through your preferences and your likes and so on or whether it's through um getting you to stream more stuff you know more content like there's an understanding that like you know these are big companies and data is important to their activities but maybe and their ways of making profit but i think that what's less evident or clear is that there is this material sort of um infrastructure and substrata to that which includes everything from the kind of material resources for devices, electronic devices to, you know, the energy that, um, uh, you know, is required to power data centers to the kind of fiber optic cables, uh, you know, and 4G and 5G infrastructures. And I think that's the, you know, that's the thing that's, it, it, is gaining more, more attention now. And certainly in our article, that was what we wanted to kind of draw attention to is the kind of material sort of yeah infrastructures that underpin these this kind of digital capitalism or or data data economy so the follow-up to to the the first part and it's been noted recently like i had a string of power outages only recently Uh, i know across the country we've experienced similar things and there is um a degree of causation that has already been covered between that and uh data center usage or increasing energy usages uh just to follow up, why are data centers so burdensome when it comes to energy usage and negative climate effects? Well, I mean, data centers, they use a lot of energy because they uh, are basically warehouses that that, 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 that sort of uh, house servers, you know, which is where the, the data is stored and processed and managed. And um, about half of the energy is used for those kinds of operations, you know, the kind of you know, algorithmic sorting and managing of that data. But the other half is for keeping the servers cool. Um, And so you're talking about, you know, massive air conditioning systems. And, um, you know, that's, that's, that's where the energy goes. And I I guess, you know, even if you wanted to bring it down to a sort of, you know, personal or kind of, uh, you know, anecdotal, you know, everyone knows their own laptops, 
or even phones, you know, they, when they start to overheat. Um, so you can imagine just like that on a, on a massive scale, um, you know, that are operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they need constant energy. That's going to be a big draw on, on, um, you know, any energy system. And then in terms of the emissions and climate change, you know, the fact is that our, uh, electricity is still generated predominantly by fossil fuels. So by gas and to some extent, uh, peat and coal. And so, you know, the burning of, of those fossil fuels to create the electricity that goes into the grid is where the emissions come from. Um, so that's the, that's the kind of short answer. And then to just kind of like expand a little bit on that in terms of the actual like internal operation of the data centers as well, there's, um, you know, one of the earliest uh, kind of PR campaigns that the data center industry did in Ireland, was, which they've done in many other places as well, is the fact that Ireland has a quote unquote cooler climate than many of the other places where they'd be um, putting their data, putting their data centers, you know, and um, it was realized quite early on that this was, you know, quite negligible in terms of the actual um, reduction of climate impacts, because, you know, uh, I think there was a quote from a Google executive at one point who was like, essentially, we just have to open the windows and, you know, it cools the servers because Ireland's got such a cool climate, right? Um, and it became quite clear pretty soon after that that wasn't actually the case, right? You know, there's still incredibly energy intensive um, cooling systems required no matter how cool the outside climate is, right? So there's a really kind of complex, um, you know, climate interaction happening between the operations within the data center and outside of it, right? And so there's a few things that have been proposed to kind of offset this with, you know, including... Um, you know, where in Tala, you know, they're talking about a uh, district heating scheme where Amazon servers are going to heat homes and businesses in the, in the local area and everything. Um, but then, you know, this is the, this kind of circular economy argument is still then re- relying on fossil fuels, right? You know, if it's, it's still being powered off the yeah. grid, right? Yeah. So these sorts of things are a little bit more complicated, but then within the data center themselves, and this is something that's been uh, controversial in a few recent um, data center proposals, they require, in the case of, you know, kind of blackouts, in the case of grid failure, they have arrays of on-site gas generators um, that will fire up uh, in, the, in the event of grid failure. And then on top of that, they also have these massive battery arrays that are charged from the grid or from these generators, which are in the, which power the data center for the, you know, let's say 30 minutes or so required to fire up all of the gen, all of the onsite generators. Right. So the, the energy systems of these things are, you know, kind of absolutely central to how they operate and they're really complicated. Um, but, you know, when it comes down to it, any backups, you know, whether it's coming off the grid and they don't have a power purchase agreement, any backups, any, you know, any way that these things uh, ultimately deal with failure, um, f- deal with failure, kind of operate without specific renewable goals is always having climate impacts because they're always, you know, it's still powered by fossil fuels. Yeah, I think as, as so often we see 
the complexity of the system kind of obscures uh, the effects, like the harmful effects, like the, the backup generators and things like that. Uh, so on the weekend, Sunday Business Post had an article in which they stated that, a proju- that it was projected that 50% of electricity would be consumed by data centers by 2030 in Ireland. Why has Ireland become such a hub for data center construction and what influence does or does Ireland's role as a tax haven for foreign and international capital play in all this? You would have mentioned previously um, that this has a lot to do with the tech sector, the Googles of the world and Amazon. Uh, and obviously Ireland um, has become a hub for all of these companies. And no doubt that it has a connection to now Ireland's position as a hub for, for data center construction. Yeah, um, I think, you know, one of the things that we try to... Um, you know, actually, I'm not sure if we mentioned it in the article, but in another another piece of work that we we published, which was around wind and data, um, is trying to sort of uh, dig a little bit deeper into the history of uh, foreign direct investment in Ireland and why it has been attracted since the beginning. And, and obviously, there is a lot of um, focus on the the kind of financial incentives and the kind of tax regime and there's no doubt that that is a huge attraction and has been you know since the beginning for foreign companies but you know if foreign if the attraction of foreign direct investment has been one of the the, the sort of main strategies of the Irish state in in sort of in its development economic development since the 1960s you have to look beyond just that it's not just about the financial incentives and one of the kind of interesting areas which i think hasn't really been that well sort of um researched and and uh, examined uh is around the kind of offerings that the irish state provided in terms of land in terms of water in terms of pollution sinks and also in terms of energy um and those are the kinds of, again, these kinds of material assets and material resources and infrastructures that effectively the Irish state has built out and provided for kind of often heavy manufacturing. You know, it, it, it's not just sort of, you know, headquarters of, of major multinationals. It's actually it was manufacturing. So going back to pharmaceuticals, chemical manufacturing, um, uh, uh you know, and then into sort of hardware manufacturing in the 1980s. So, you know, before you had the likes of Apple and Google, you had Microsoft, obviously the big one in, in Maynooth. Uh, and before that, you had others that were, you know, in Galway, for example, which was a bit of a hub for for hardware. So, um, you know, people like Sheree Deckard, who's in, in UCD, has written a really great article on this around Ireland's neoliberal ecolog- ecological regime. Um, and that has a you know much longer history going back to colonial times, but in the ni- from the 1960s in terms of foreign direct investment, you're talking about the likes of just as one example, Pfizer locating in Cork in the 1970s, yeah. a whole new water treatment plant and wastewater treatment plant was built for Pfizer, and that resulted in Ringeskini having water shortages. So you you started your question by talking about possible you know uh, power cuts. This sort of the contradictions between the public good and the provision of infrastructures for citizens and uh, sort of corporate needs and the provision of infrastructures for those needs has a much longer history. And it's really important to situate what's happening today around the data centers in that longer history, because we have to really understand what we're up against. And, and we're talking about a kind of a, uh, you know, 
Ireland's political economy, the, the, the sort of institutions and, and sort of cultures and structures of the state, which are so orientated towards foreign direct investment. Um, that means that, you know, trying to obstruct data centers is just like the latest point of uh, efforts to try to sort of uh, disrupt or block or obstruct, you know, a much more sort of foundational you know, sort of, you know, character of the Irish state and the way in which the economy functions. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that that's an important, a really, you know, it's really important to understand what we are up against. People like Conor McCabe, I think, you know, have been, have been making this point for a long time. Um, but yeah, I'll pass you over to Pat. I'm sure he'll add some, some more things to that. Um, I guess just the one thing in terms of um, more recent, more recently, you know, the um, establishment of data centers um, is that it really starts to take off in at the same time as, you know, the quote unquote origin point, let's say, of um, what they what um, people in the industry call the fourth industrial revolution. So it's uh, 2007, 2008 is when you really start to see an uptick of the tech companies, which were largely already based in Ireland, you know, um, from you know kind of celtic tiger days and they began they began to you know kind of realize that ireland was a place where they were going to be able to build out these data centers that were increasingly required for you know the kind of it's because it's not just you know kind of hyperscale um computing infrastructures there was also a kind of general shift you know let's say during the 2000s towards off-site outsource, you know, kind of like data um, management schemes, right? Because like an example that I've heard used is, you know, like, I don't know if you remember going to an office building in the 90s, or, you know, kind of like, remembering these movies about offices, and, you know, where they would have a server room, right? And the server room was this kind of mysterious thing that, you know, was kind of managed by, you know, you can think of like the IT crowd, right? You know, there's that server room that they don't really understand what it does. Um, and those started to be outsourced, right, you know, at a certain point um, and kind of re-centralized within these kind of large scale co-location data centers, as well as um, the, uh, you know, the hyperscalers like Google, Facebook, Microsoft, you know, these kind of cloud and uh, social media companies. But so this in Ireland kind of was a uh, it, it appeared it came to appear like a sort of natural progression of the you know, tech manufacturing to tech services to, you know, kind of like um, cloud computing um, in a way that, you know, again, it was sort of from, you know, you see the first applications for these things around, you know, the mid 2000s and then especially post-financial crisis um, right. is when they really take off, which right. is a really interesting correlation that, you know, um, I'm sure there's a political economic uh, explanation for, you know, this kind of crisis management, you know, the kind of uh, re-establishment and kind of like desperate uh, attraction of FDI that kind of took off even more so um, post-financial crisis. But. I might also just come in there again, because I think it's it's good to like, you know, ground this stuff in examples. I think one of the sites that we have been to, well, I've been to is in, um, in Kalala in North Mayo, which is, you know, I guess it's it's far away from like Silicon Docks and so on, as far as mm. you can get, really. And uh, 
in in Kalala, there, there's an industrial sort of zoned area that would have been zoned probably in the late 50s, early 60s for, um, you know, industrial activities, manufacturing. And it was uh, it was used to attract Asahi, which is a Japanese company that manufactured um, some kinds of chemical um, it, it, like threads. I think what they were, they were used in packaging. And uh, so they located there in the in the 70s and they were there all the way up to the 90s for maybe 20 years. And when they moved to Kalala in the early 70s, as far as I know, it was the biggest um, investment of a Japanese company outside of Japan up to that point. And it was in Kalala in North Mayo. So an unlikely place. And in, in Kalala it, and, and in Balana, which is the closer, bigger town, it provided employment for hundreds of people and transformed that area, including the infrastructure, water treatment plant was built and everything. So it transformed that area. And this is FDI. And it's a, an FDI of that particular period, which was manufacturing that provided lots of jobs. That went bust in the 90s. We kind of know the bigger picture. A lot of this heavy manufacturing outsourced somewhere else, cheaper labor, you know, you know, lax, more lax environmental regulations, whatever. So it closed. Lots of jobs were lost. And that site has effectively been empty, except for small companies, local companies that have used it for like recycling and so on. And the Mayo County Council, which basically manages that site, isn't looking for another big entity to come in and take over that site and we're now in the sort of era of data centers and data centers are seen as like a big industrial installation that can somehow fit the gap that has been left by these industrial manufacturing facilities so they are because that's the only policy that the irish state has for the likes of kalala there's no other kinds of indigenous development nothing else they're basically being driven towards trying to catch the attention of data center providers, mostly in the US, and say, come here, come here, come here. So they're trying to get them to come and locate in Kalala. The problem is they don't provide any jobs. So what you have is this huge site that has been zoned for industrial activity. Any heavy industry that provides jobs is gone and won't come back. But data centers might come there, which is a big building that uses loads of energy and is kind of ugly in an industrial kind of way. But it's going to provide like a couple of jobs, you know, you know, medium term. I mean, construction in the short term. But, you know, I talked to somebody in the council who's, who's trying to develop this as a, as a sort of a, a project going forward. And he completely was honest about the fact that there wouldn't be jobs, but it would be something. It's right. like it's some kind of investment. And that's that's what you're kind of dealing with. Um, that's why they're popping up everywhere. Because it's it's kind of the best it's the best there is when you've got a state that's it's not great at, at doing other kinds of development. Yeah, I also seen uh, over the weekend again while researching um, that there's now a dedicated lobbying group in Ibeck headed by ex Labour TD and also some government or ex government TDs as well. Um, and it's been noted how these lobbying groups can be tied in with establishment parties or the government um, examples such as these as, uh, along with what you touched on there I think can show the immense weight that the state and international capital can put behind these projects um, one thing that lobbyists will argue uh, who favor data center construction is that they are in fact using renewable energy either on site or through their funding of it uh, on the energy grid what what is your take on this and, and how do you respond to, to claims like this or, or, or any other claims that are floating around um, in in these lobbying groups i think to start with there's no point in being 
um, you know, overly polemic and kind of um, reduce what is a, a kind of a complex, you know, set of relationships between, you know, the tech companies, uh, you know, and developments in the energy sector, particularly around renewables, like these things are, are, are developing quite quickly. Stuff is happening. And I think that it's sometimes a little bit um, uh, disingenuous or a little bit naive to just say greenwashing. Like, obviously, a lot of it is greenwashing. But like, what do we mean by greenwashing? Like that. So to start, there is no doubt that tech companies are looking to invest in or sort of get their names involved in renewable energy projects, including in Ireland. And that is um, largely because of pressure that has been put on them since, you know, already 10 years ago. I think Greenpeace, the the Clicking Green report, which was the first sort of uh, major report that that Greenpeace sort of began, which was looking at the kind of um, environmental, um, particularly energy sort of footprint of big tech companies. And, you know, it was an important report that really kind of shone a light on the fact that these things weren't just the cloud, you know, they weren't just sort of ethereal. And kind of off the back of that uh, and other kinds of pressures, they've all been competing with each other to out be out to out green each other, basically. So it's another kind of terrain on which they can compete. Um, and so they have all come out, a lot of them with claims to be 100 percent renewable by Amazon has claimed by 2026, which is very, very short time. Uh, and other companies are claiming to be zero emissions and so on. And and quite a few of them have signed up to this zero emissions charter. Uh, I think that's what it's called. Um, and uh, so what's happening beneath that, those kind of claims. So in Ireland, the main one is through uh, the main way in which the tech companies are showing their commitment to renewable energy is through corporate power purchase agreements, CPPAs. And these are a kind of actually a central part now of uh, government uh, climate policy, a way to fund renewable energy. They hope that by 2030, 35% of new renewable energy capacity will be funded, financed through the CPPAs. What they mean or what a CPPA is, is a big energy consumer. So Basically, that's tech companies, but it could be Tesco, for example. It could be, right. um, you know, any any large sort of uh, uh, organization that is a, a, a big kind of energy footprint. They can directly invest in renewable energy by buying up energy over, usually it's a 15-year period. Um, that's how long the lease is for. That's how long the contract is for. So they basically... Go to you know get into a contract or an arrangement with a, a a wind energy developer and say we guarantee that for fifteen years you will get this minimum price for your energy. So it, it's not that they directly, in a physical sense, get the electricity generated from the wind farm. What they promise is a minimum price. So that wind farm, like every energy provider, it basically goes onto the energy market and it tries to sell its energy at the highest price it can. And more often than not, it might not go down to a minimum price. But if it does, the the company that it has the contract with for the CPPA, let's imagine Facebook or let's say Amazon, guarantees that it will come in and make sure that that it gets the lowest price for every you know every watt that it provides. So that's the kind of contractual arrangement. Um, that company, though, say Amazon or Facebook, is not directly building wind energy capacity or renewable energy capacity, it's not putting up any money up front. 
it's it's not like a you know a direct investment it's just this this price guarantee um and there's lots of questions then around that which is the first one being if amazon or facebook wasn't you know providing that that financial guarantee that price guarantee would that wind farm be built anyway um there's a good there's a good chance or there's a strong argument that it would because of the current market for renewable energy um and there is this the state uh you know rest scheme which is effectively the same thing where the state comes in and guarantees a minimum price for for new uh, energy projects and as we go forward in time it's going to be more and more the case that these uh, renewable energy projects are going to get off the ground because there's more and more investors who are eager to invest in these projects and they are commercially viable it's not like 10 years ago so that's that part of it um uh, i hope that was somewhat clear the other aspect of it is like even if these this wind energy capacity was being built that wouldn't otherwise be built because of the financial guarantees of amazon or facebook or um uh you know google um the amount of renewable energy that they have so far invested in the amount of of new generation is a very small fraction of what their data centers in ireland currently demand so in that sense it is more symbolic than it is you know an actual realistic dent in their energy energy uh, uh, you know demands um so in that case there there is definitely a amount of greenwashing certainly the extent of of media attention that they get for these projects uh, it doesn't at all equate to um uh, any kind of balancing of their 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 energy demands i think that you know another like the ultimate point that we kind of always return to is that the is exactly what um, Patty kind of end with there, which ended with there, which is the fact that they aren't really directly responsible for building it in the right. end, right? And um, you know, the CPPA is uh, the the CPPA system is a way to ensure that there is funding for, you know, new renewable energy projects. But ultimately, if it gets to a point where all of those new renewable energy projects are being funneled into one industry, right, which in this industry, the general energy use of the country isn't changing except for the growth of this industry, then ultimately you're left with, you know, all new renewable energy capacity going to the growth of data center energy demands. So when it comes down to it, you know, if they continue to grow at the, you know, at the rate that they are, and if, you know, there's not massive strides in efficiency, right. Which, you know, is another kind of argument that's brought up by industry um, professionals quite a lot is that they say that data center energy efficiency is constantly, um, being optimized to keep up with the growth in the technologies themselves and the data centers themselves and the infrastructures themselves. Um, And yet in Ireland, you see this, you know, if you look at the graphs of energy use versus the growths, uh, you know, the growth of data center energy demands, you know, it's essentially directly correlated. Um, So I think that this is kind of where we, you know, like, I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with the corporate power purchase agreement system in, um, 
you know, in terms of where we're at today, which kind of requires the private sector to get involved in these things. Um, but I do think that it can be used as spin and it is used as spin for the industry because ultimately there isn't really a commitment or a responsibility being demonstrated if this is only to feed their growth, right? It's not, you know, it's not as though there's going to be any spare energy from, for example, Amazon's uh, power, corporate power purchase agreement with the Meanbog Wind Farm in Donegal. You know, it's it ultimately makes up a fraction of what of the energy that Amazon is using in Ireland. You know, like an incredibly small fraction, um, and yet you see this heralded as evidence of their responsibility. You know, like Leo Varadkar even kind of made a personal statement when he was chief shock about you know the these corporate power purchase agreements by Amazon heralding their climate responsibility and their commitment to Ireland. Um, and yet, if you look at the actual percentages of their operations that are being um, constituted by these wind farms that they're buying the energy for, it's an incredibly small fraction, right? And they're building, you know, at the minute, they probably have several data centers under construction in Ireland between Dublin and Drogheda. Um, so it's, it's just, I guess it's something where like keeping an eye on the ways that the kind of like the PR machine around these data centers is heralding their responsibility in ways that really don't match up with the kind of urgency of Ireland decarbonizing its grid. Because if all the decarbon all this decarbonization is ultimately only making up for the growth in one industry, then you know it's not really doing anything at all. Yeah, I think like an analogy that I've I've heard from somewhere else, which was around. Um, it was in a different context. It was through with plastics and plastic recycling, but you could apply it to Ireland and its decarbonization efforts and the data centers that are, are growing, which is that it's like trying to bail out a boat that has holes appearing in it. Like every data center that is given planning permission and is built, it's just like a big hole yeah. in the boat. And, and, you know, everyone else is being told to carry the burden of reducing their carbon footprint, get electric vehicles, retrofit their houses, cycle more, fly less. There's so much onus on individuals who don't have the resources to reduce their carbon footprint, while at the same time there is a green light to the expansion of this industry that is just like adding X amount of emissions uh, to the grid. So, you know, there there is a fundamental contradiction, which again comes back to that point I made about like you know the ring a skinny water plant, ring a skinny water plant in the nineteen seventies, where there was water shortages for citizens, but there was you know water supply for Pfizer, and I, I think that you know what's happening with the data centers and the climate and energy, the contradictions are starting to become more tangible and they're coming to the surface, and hopefully, you know that can be articulated in some kind of you know progressive progressive way and be linked to a, a kind of a you know different kind of politics um that doesn't just um i guess uh you know put all its faith in some kind of uh you know technological solutions that are going to come some point down the road which are you know as far as i'm concerned not not um they're not uh they're not realistic 
Yeah, absolutely. And and before moving on to, I think the the final word is probably on the alternative. Um, even though you've communicated there, I think very well. Um, just as as a finishing piece, even just what what's touched on very well, and I think is is um, important to note is that there have already been and there's ongoing grounds of resistance to renewable infrastructure um, playing out in Ireland already. Um, what's the nature of this and how does it fit in um, with current developments? And what is the scale of it or, or scope for it in the future? You, you mentioned rural communities is where we, we get uh, the most amount of friction. I think it's laid out quite well in the piece, um, how that's counterposed to infrastructural abandonment in other areas for these towns, um, counterposed with immense spending um, and accommodation for what is uh, what you've laid out there as a kind of a sunk cost in many respects. Yeah, I mean, I guess just to touch on the... Uh, you know, the rural aspect and I'll, I'll let Patty kind of go more into our, um, some of our field work about, uh, you know, the anti-wind uh, obje- objections and movements and stuff. But, you know, just in terms of purely objections to data centers, um, you know, the kind of big case that we always return to, right. And I think is always kind of going to be a touch point whenever you're talking about data centers in Ireland is the Apple um, in Athenry case, you know, with um, where you had a really interesting dynamic in the town because people were actually mostly in support of this data center for the same reasons that Patty was talking about in Kalala, where it's it's something, right? Even if people sort of understood that there weren't really going to be jobs, the idea was that it was going to be something, some form of economic development in a place that felt as though they were kind of being left out of um, of Ireland's, you know, recovery. Uh, post-financial crisis. Um, But what you saw there was also really, really interesting and savvy objection tactics by the objectors who were, um, you know, kind of, there was pretty much only two of them. It was Alan Daly and uh, Sinead Fitzpatrick. Alan Daly was an engineer and Sinead Fitzpatrick was a lawyer. And essentially what they did was just like found different sorts of points of pressure that were able to delay this project essentially. And again, you know, as we know, Apple abandoned the project. Now they're kind of coming and looking back at it. Um, you know, you can speculate that it's probably because of the uh, push from the government to start locating more data centers in rural areas because of the saturation of the Dublin grid. But, you know, there's already a kind of like playbook laid out by um, Alan Daly and Sinead Fitzpatrick in Athenry, which was take it through the, co- and again, this is expensive. Not everyone has, has the resources, but I think that ultimately this is something, you know, kind of delaying things to the point that they become unviable was, was something that was really, really interesting about that case. And something that, you know, I would, um, I would say is quite common is, is quite a common idea across a lot of these objections across a lot of these kind of movements to object to, large-scale projects. Um, And then I would say another one that's kind of currently underway uh, against data centers specifically is um, in Ennis. There's the uh, Future Proof Clare and, you know, a few other kind of affiliated groups groups down in Clare are putting together a kind of um, large objection campaign to this data center that's being built there that um, is apparently going to be powered by uh, what is natural gas I think is kind of the plan and it's, you know, it's essentially a, the numbers are pretty, you know, 
tragic. If you look at, you know, yeah. it's a, it is uh, catastrophically polluting uh, infrastructure that they're trying to put in there at a time when so many other data centers have seen the writing on the wall and are decarbonizing, right? Um, so there has been, you know, these kind of rural objection campaigns um, are going to be more and more important and more and more important to, you know, both support um, and pay attention to because of the fact that, uh, you know, the Dublin, the Dublin grid is saturated. There's already too much, too many data centers drawing on, you know, the capacity of the Dublin region. And so these data centers are going to be moved farther and farther afield because where there's, um, you know, available, uh, available energy. So it's, it, these kinds of campaigns are going to become more and more interesting, but, you know, I'll let Patty kind of go into also, you know, kind of different point in that uh, supply chain with, you know, with the uh, objection to the wind farms. Yeah. So um, that's it. And I, I think that those that, you know, the groups that we've been meeting with uh, and in contact with that are objecting to wind farms and not just wind farms, but to battery storage arrays, which are obviously a key part of the, the infrastructure when you've got so much wind energy on the grid. So you need ways of, of, of storing um, that energy. Um, and at the moment that, you know, where that's looking to is, is lithium, um, you know, battery arrays, at least for sort of short term storage. So they're being built out on the grid. You've got more substations, you've got more pylons, a whole set of things that are only going to be expanding over the next 10 years as we move towards more renewables. Um, but what's interesting about a lot of those groups is that they are very cognizant of the question of data centers. And so their basic thing, asking this question of who is this infrastructure for? And, you know, that goes so much against the grain of this kind of not in my backyard, NIMBY type thing that, you know, you often yeah. see attached to objections to things like wind farms. A lot of what we've heard is people saying, if we felt confident that this infrastructure was for the public good, and it was about climate change and it was about all these things, maybe we could put up with it. You know, maybe it's not great. We don't want it, but we could put up with it. But nobody can assure us or make clear to us that that is the case because they are very cognizant of the kinds of political economies that we've been discussing for the last 45 minutes, half an hour, which is that these are commercial projects they are, um, you know, owned by, uh, you know, shareholders in, in um, you know, now global energy companies and, and developers. And the energy provided is seemingly going to big data centers. And that is not about their interests. Uh, and it's not about the interests of the public good. So I think that, like, the, the, the level of canniness and understanding of what's going on you know, in these groups and in these campaigns is far more advanced than is often given credit in the media, but also on large parts of the left, I would say as well, and environmental groups. Um, so that was, that'd be one point. The other thing that I think is worth saying about these campaigns and these um, objections is that they are also rooted in much longer histories. I mean, you mentioned at the beginning that thing about infrastructural abandonment and kind of spatial injustice, uneven development on the island of Ireland, particularly between the East and the West. But there's also histories of struggles around environmental issues and infrastructural developments that, again, don't get as much light and as much air as they should on the left in Ireland. I mean, the most prominent one is obviously Shell to Sea, 
and in Rossport. And, you know, that was a, a, a very clear question of a kind of, you know, fossil fuel, like, you know, global corporation shell and its extractive industries and the ways in which that undermined livelihoods, you know, attachments to place. It wasn't democratically accountable. You know, ultimately, the state used its own force to, to sort of back up the interests of this, this, this company. But it's not a million miles away from that what's happening with, with, with wind farms. Uh, and wind turbines. You're talking about an extractive industry. It's not fossil fuels, but it's wind. You're talking about there being very little benefit to local communities, except for, you know, past these community benefit funds, which, are, you know, is pretty much the same strategy that's been employed for 30, 40 years by these companies, trying to effectively split communities, buy out certain interests. Um, and, uh, you know, in these places, there's a lot of knowledge of this and experience of it um, that is kind of residual. And so I think that what's difficult or maybe not difficult, but it is a challenge is that the kinds of politics, and this is something that Pat and I tried to get at in that article, that are happening in these places are not that, um, they're not that familiar or assimilatable, if that's a word, assimilable to a kind of more urban-based, you know, workerist-based left politics. Um, Really what we're looking at or drawing on in the kinds of sort of theoretical approaches and and sort of conceptual approaches to these kinds of politics is much more like environmental justice struggles in parts of the global south, which are about territory, that are about livelihood, um, that are about, uh, you know, even questions to do with uh, certain kinds of indigeneity, certain kinds of um, identity that are rooted in these in these particular places, and obviously you can't just wholesale transplant these things. But it is the nature of Ireland's development as a colony and then post-colony that it has this kind of split identity, and it's not surprising that you have these kinds of different types of politics that are happening in the kind of more marginalised, um, you know. Uh, you know, you know, parts of the island. So, yeah, I mean, where the resistance is happening, it's, you know, there's around data centers, like Pat said, it's around wind farms and energy infrastructures. And then there's another layer of this, which we haven't really touched on yet, but that's around mining. Um, you know, the, the renewable energy transition also requires minerals and metals like gold and lithium. Um, and again, usually we associate mining with other parts of the world, but you have gold mining, uh, uh, you know, licenses have been granted in parts of Ireland already. In the Sparren Mountains in Tyrone, there is a very active campaign, has been for two or three years, um, you know, trying to object to Dalradian, Canadian company going in there to mine for gold. Two licenses have recently been granted for lithium mining in Leinster, in Carlow and Kilkenny, right. at the beginning of this year, when no one was paying attention. Ireland is seen as one of the kind of hubs or hotspots for what are called critical minerals for the renewable energy transition. Um, so I, I think that, you know, I, I guess what, what this all boils down to is us trying to make the case that the renewable energy transition is opening up new frontiers. And these new frontiers are largely located in rural peripheral areas. And whether it's mining or energy infrastructure or data centers, which are kind of another another part of this kind of green fantasy uh, future, these objections and these kinds of politics have to be, we have to engage with them, you know, uh, 
if, if we're interested in, in, in any kind of questions of like climate justice, social justice. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's, that's a challenge to a lot of us, especially because we're in Dublin, you know, there's basic logistical things like yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. going down to meet people and, you know, you know, creating kind of relationships and stuff. I mean, I guess it's, you know, it shouldn't be too difficult, but you know, these are, these are like practical and I guess more kind of, you know, intellectual questions that we, we, we're at least trying to grapple with. And just to expand on that a tiny bit, you know, um, in terms of, you know, the global character of these things, like Patty was saying, you know, the urgency, right. Of, you know, kind of planetary transition to, you know, greener economies and stuff, um, is generate, you know, this is an intensive and an extensive, um, thing happening in Ireland, right. You know, cause you can see it within Ireland, but then we're also trying to put this in conversation with people like Thea Ria Francos, who's, um, you know, written a fair bit on, you know, kind of green new deal, uh, politics, but then also kind of like global supply chain justice, um, as it's kind of getting called, you know, around issues of, you know, critical mineral, mineral extraction, um, you know, things like uh, lithium mining in the Atacama Plateau in South America. And, um, you know, we're kind of trying to figure out the internal and external dynamics of Ireland's place within, you know, this kind of global green transition, um, you know, which is, you know, in many ways, simply kind of transplanting or substituting you know, older forms of extraction for diff- for newer forms of extraction, right? You know, where ultimately there isn't very much difference between, you know, the kind of exploitation of, uh, you know, oil reserves um, or, you know, copper or, you know, whatever other minerals for, you know, kind of earlier forms of industry and manufacturing, um, you know, from the global south and the way that now lithium batteries are, you know, essentially being, fueled by extraction in a different part of the global south right you know so it's there's not really um we're we're kind of looking at the way that these things are ultimately continuous right you know they obviously take new forms and take new shapes and um you know you have to be very careful and sensitive about ireland's active place within you know kind of generating and fueling and um ensuring the continuity of these global systems of extraction. But then you can also see them playing out at a kind of micro scale across Ireland. Um, You know, so kind of we're trying to, one of the thing, you know, kind of the bigger questions that we're trying to grapple with is, you know, the kind of global scope of these things and where Ireland's kind of uneven development of them, right. And the kind of uneven development of Ireland in general, um, kind of what role this plays in the kind of more global scope of it. I think that's a, a crucial place in myself that I'm like starting to read more on in terms of global systems of extraction, exploitation, imperialism, and how that ties into global supply chains, which you which you touched on there. Um, I think is certainly seems like something that has a an emerging body of work that is important for the socialist left to kind of grapple with. Um, but something also that that you touched on as well, Patrick, 
that I thought resonated was from an activist perspective, I think something the socialist left often struggles to grapple with is relating to the demands of rural communities in the context of these um, struggles for uh, space and infrastructure, territory and things like this. And this is like a growing uh, a growing question or would have reached peaks in the past uh, around things, as you mentioned, like like Shelter Sea um, and, and may do so in the in the art definitely will in the future and it's important uh, that these things are, are thought about and I think your your both of your your piece uh, makes a, a valuable contribution to that just just finally then uh, I, I suppose a closing a closing piece to think about is is outlining the alternative to all of this I think that the piece deals very well uh, in taking up the flawed logic of kind of substitution um, or what you describe as easy narratives of sustainability um, and that more difficult questions of degrowth may better connect to the global interests of the left or to local grievances um, so just what is what is your understanding of the alternatives another um Another activist had said to me that they thought that the real alternative is cutting down on the, when we talk about degrowth, is cutting down on the amount of unnecessary computing that takes place. You have things like ads, advertising algorithms, you know, the immense amount of data that is used to track people's um, consumption habits. And I don't know uh, what your thought on that is, but it's just interesting to hear if you have anything that spells that out more in, in, in a way. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll kind of start with that because it's, you know, it's something that we we talk about a lot, right? Because there's a there's a kind of, you know, people want to know what they can do, right? You know, at a kind of basic everyday level, you know, and it's it's always really great to hear when you talk about the, um, you know, the scale and the scope of the problems of data centers, you know, in general, and the kind of systems within which they uh, participate and, you know, kind of the energy systems that they require. People really, really like the idea that you can do something by reducing your streaming, reducing your consumption, reducing your, uh, you know, like uh, what gets called kind of data hygiene practices, right? Like essentially try and scrub all the unnecessary computing from, uh, from, your activities, right? And I think that that's, it's a really good point for people to be aware of, right? And I think that it's a, that it's a good starting point. But then I also think that it needs to be taken a step further into a kind of general, um, making sure that it's always associated with the general problem of the business models of these companies and the models of development of the state that are essentially relying on greater and greater and greater, um, you know, kind of transition to being online, right. Or like, you know, kind of like data constant sort of data driven enterprise, you know, within basically everything that you do. Right. Um, so obviously, you know, something like the pandemic has really uh, accelerated a lot of these sort of transitions to aspects of our everyday life, aspects of our, you know, kind of employment you know, the business we conduct and, you know, even just our general social lives transitioning to greater and greater um, requirement of, uh, you know, data use, you know, kind of constant um, computing. And, you know, there's some ways that uh, some strategies that people have talked about to kind of basically reduce your um, data use, right? You know, you can reduce your bandwidth. You shouldn't be streaming things at super high quality because, you know, um, you can essentially cut your, you know, computing 
by a fraction, you know, to a fraction, if you, you know, reduce your bandwidth, if you, uh, you know, lower your file, you know, um, what's it, compress your files, things like this, right? Um, just ensuring that, you know, there's less storage required, there's less uh, kind of every sort of computing required. But it's, I think that you need to make sure not to lose sight of the fact that, you know, that's sort of a nice solution to a much bigger problem, right? You know, yes. it's, it would be similar to yes. telling people to, you know, um, reduce the amount of wood that they burn in their fireplace at home, right? You know, like it's obviously something to do, but there also needs to be a greater understanding and sort of like a greater activity, um, you know, or activism around things like, uh, you know, just to be a little bit more polemic or, you know, directly access, you know, stopping these companies from yeah. being allowed to do what they do, right? From, you know, kind of objecting to data centers, objecting to the kind of constant growth of these economies. Um, and obviously, you know, there needs to be both. Um, and I think that it's, uh, there's some really, really interesting things happening around, you know, kind of reducing data use and kind of, you know, going more offline. But I think that, you know, there that needs to be coupled with a kind of general understanding of the business models that these are a part of, you know, who's making money off of these things constantly. And then also, um, you know, I think Patty has a more, uh, has a better understanding of a kind of politics of degrowth than I do um, that he can go into a little more, which I think would be something, you know, a, another kind of necessary uh, alternative um, or a necessary way forward out of these sort of um, endless loops of extraction and uh, extraction and pollution. Thank you, Patrick. Um, I'm not sure about that, but I would, <laughs> I, I guess a bit like Pat, you know, he started by being a little bit kind of, um, circumspect about like laying out alternatives and um, I know that's a bit of a cop out but um, I, I do think that like you know one of the things you know that we've been trying to do is is sort of think about how sort of you know imaginaries or like you know discourses around wind and other kinds of ambient energy like solar for example and data are very similar so this idea of data being um, sort of abundant, you know, possibly infinite, the same with wind and solar, these projections that you see about it being infinite. And I think that there is this sort of the thing that undergirds that and is shared, you know, by kind of, you know, some eco-socialists too, you know, this idea of a, if, if only we kind of, you know, controlled those things, we could make that a more kind of like socialist alternative rather than a kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, destructive capitalist one, but they maybe both share this idea that these things are limitless. Um, and I think that rather than getting into the, 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 the you know, the, the specificities of some kind of alternative, I think that the first thing that we should do or need to do is cleave to those, um, uh, uh, you know, um, objections and struggles and um usually less visible less audible um uh you know sites and subjects that are saying no this isn't infinite because it requires all of this fucking extraction you know whether that's in bolivia whether that's in in china whether that's in ireland all sorts of extraction and violence is happening because of this fantasy of limitless growth of data and limitless growth of of um 
uh, of of uh, so-called renewable energy. And I think that it's out of those sites and out of through some kind of engagement with those sites and those kinds of politics that maybe some kind of alternatives might be articulated. So that's the first thing. Um, but then in terms of, yeah, in terms of, you know, alternatives and why I think that degrowth, even though I know there is a lot of um, uh, uh, resistance to that term because it's associated with austerity in some way, it's associated with like limits, sometimes in a kind of Malthusian sense, like natural limits in some way. Um, I get all that. But, you know, if you actually engage with the, the scholars, you know, and activists who are most prominent in degrowth and in campaigns and in, in, in what they write, I mean, really what they're calling for is more of good stuff and less of the bad stuff, you know. Um, and I think there there's all sorts of ways of linking you know, a kind of a degrowth politics of energy and data with, you know, critiques, more fundamental critiques of work and what work has meant within capitalism, which is always associated with productivity, with growth, in the same way that energy has always been associated with work and productivity. So some idea of unhitching those things and thinking about, uh, you know, our our, our activities, our, our, our bodily, um, uh, you know, labors, our, 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 our relationships to other people, our relationships to the environment as somehow, you know, outside of kind of, you know, wage labor and ideas of, you know, dominant ideas of, of productive work. Then we can start imagining and experimenting with very different ways of organizing our, um, you know, our, our, our work and our creativity and energy, because, you know, uh, you know, there's no doubt that there is, you know, all sorts of, you know, technical possibilities with, with wind energy and with solar energy. It's just the, the worry is that it's just going to be harnessed to, um, you know, new engines of growth and new engines of, of production. And, you know, they are, are not going to be good for the planet and they're not going to be good for most people. Um, yeah, so sorry if that's a bit of a cop out, but it's definitely yeah, it's definitely something that, that Pat and I, you know, it's not that we don't spend time thinking about it, but it's it it is hard. It is hard because you do have to step out of the kind of common sense ideas of like, you know, our world is saturated with data. There's no escaping it. Or you know, what would we do without Netflix? What would we do without Twitter? You know, we're all working from home. It's impossible. You know, at, at some level, yeah, we get that and share that. But at the other level, it's like, you know, these things are very recent, really recent um, uh, developments. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot at stake at making sure that they don't um, they don't just keep on um, going on the same kind of path that they, they've been on. I think that's a, a, a perfect roundup of what we've discussed today and that the underlying message of the the piece uh, which i'd encourage everybody to read and i'm going to link uh, i'm going to get first um the other article that you mentioned and sheree deckard's article and anything else that we have mentioned uh in this discussion uh, and i think if there's one message i can fully get behind it's people getting off twitter getting active around uh, an alternative to our current system that i think you've uh, raised the issues with quite well um so just thanks a million for joining me uh, both of you it was an absolute pleasure uh, on our behalf both having the article and having you you both on this podcast thank you thanks Jeremy. yeah thanks so much for having us perfect